You're listening to a message from Stonegate Church in Midlothian, Texas. For more information about Stonegate and additional audio resources, visit Stonegate-Church.com. So we're in Psalm 67 today, so if you want to turn there, there's a Bible underneath your seat, you can go ahead and do that, or the words will be up on the screen for you as we walk through it. Uh, When I think about Psalm 67, if I could give it a title, in which I guess I kind of can because I'm preaching it, I would call it a a missional benediction, a missional benediction. So two words that you probably don't hear that often. Mission just meaning there's a purpose, there's something that you're trying to achieve or accomplish, so there's a mission associated with it, and then a benediction. And a benediction is really just a bestowing, a handing out of a blessing. It's reminding people whose they are and the purpose of the mission that they're being sent out on. So what you would see all throughout the Old Testament is that God's people would come together and the priests would have a benediction, a bestowal of blessing upon God's people in which they'd be reminded of the God that they serve and the God that loves them. So much so that the benediction would often be a reminder of what God has done in their life already. That is, they're looking toward their future. They have all those questions about what's going to happen next and who's going to provide for us and is God trustworthy and does God love me and will God come through? It was a reminder of who their God was because we all are so prone to forget who God really is, aren't we? Especially when Tuesday afternoon comes around and life feels hectic, especially when there's no answer on Thursday, when things seem to be falling apart or your marriage is in the ditch. Who is God? And so the Israelites would look back and they'd be remembered, this is a God who's faithful, a God who's brought us out of Egypt, who's brought us out of slavery, who's made us a new people, and he's called us to a better future, a promised land. And so our psalm starts out today in verse 1, and it picks right up upon this idea of a benediction. Verse 1 says this, May God be gracious to us and bless us, and may he make his face to shine upon us. Selah. And what this is, is this is taking, it's a reference right to Numbers, Numbers 6.24. It's a verse in there, and it's called the Arionic Arionic Benediction. So there's your, your fun word for the day, Arionic, which Aaron was the first priest of Israel. He was the first guy to ever be the priest of Israel. And what he would do is all of God's people, Israel would come together and he would share this benediction over them. Almost word for word, the psalmist is pulling in the Arionic blessing and reminding the people of whose they are and to whom they belong to. And what I love about it is it immediately reminds us is we often sometimes get trapped up into thinking or some of us have the perception that the Old Testament is primarily a God who's only concerned about the nation of Israel, that this God was only concerned about those people and he did not have this missionary mindset where he wanted to see all people and all nations and all tribes and all tongues to hear the good news of the gospel. But already we see embedded in that a missionary pulse that the mission of God has always expanded, starts with the fall, obviously, and then God already makes a promise that he says, Eve, through your son, there will be a savior eventually brought forth. And we see in Abraham, a nation is born, and we see that continue to culminate as God is setting aside a people for himself to eventually be a blessing to the rest of the world. But before they can be a blessing, before this mission can go forward, they need to be reminded of what always comes before mission, what always comes before doing or purpose. They need to be reminded of whose they are. And they need to be reminded of who their God is. And so right here in verse 1, I, I mean, verse 1, should, it should blow our minds. It's that incredible. Because in verse 1, you already get, in some ways, an Old Testament depiction of the gospel. 
you get an Old Testament unfolding of the very God that we're talking about and the God that you and I know in Jesus Christ. In fact, let's just look at this phrase by phrase, and we're going to see that. So it says, may God be gracious to us. May God be gracious to us. What is grace? Grace is unmerited favor. It's you getting what you don't deserve. In fact, it's often you don't only not get what you deserve, you, someone else gets what you deserve and you get something else. You get pleasure, you get joy, you get new life, you get restoration, you get hope, you get joy. And so grace is you're not getting what you deserve. That's the type of God you're dealing with. He's a gracious God. He's a loving God. He's a forgiving God. So think of the courtroom analogy, which some of you have maybe heard before. Think of like a, the Supreme Court and someone comes before the Supreme Court and they're accused of high treason. They violated the Supreme Court, the law of the land. And they get grace. They get grace. So they look at the judge, and the judge says, not guilty. You are forgiven. But this is not a judge who, who just says you're forgiven for any old violation, but rather the violation is against him directly. So he comes off of the stand and he takes the place of the person who's actually guilty and he absorbs the punishment and he takes on the wrath. So it's not like he's, he's disconnected from the punishment, rather he absorbs and takes the punishment himself. Not guilty, that's what it means for God to be gracious to you and I. Sometimes we wonder, God, where are you? God, what are you doing? God, what do you have for me? God, why do good things, why do bad things happen to good people? And the reality is, is God is saying, Actually, all of you, all of you should not want what you really deserve. Because if you got what you deserved, it would be wrath. It would be judgment. It would be punishment. It would be death. But rather, you don't get what you deserve. God took what you deserved, and you got grace. You got unmerited favor. You got forgiveness. And here's where, I mean, it, it's still going to get even more wild than that. Can you believe the Bible? I mean, this, this is nuts. We get to study this stuff. I love this. This is where it says, and bless us and bless us. So not only does the judge come off the bench and he takes the punishment, he takes the death penalty for someone who's rebelled and committed cosmic treason, not only does he do that, but then he says, why don't you come over to my house and take all of my stuff? Why don't you come over and get blessing upon blessing upon blessing? You get new life, you get redemption, you get forgiven, you get new hope, you get restoration, you get purpose, you get everything that I have. Can you imagine that? So it's not only enough that the judge says you're forgiven, but then the judge says, come over to my house and take all that you want. Take all of my stuff. It's all yours. How audacious is this? What does this tell us about God? What kind of God not only forgives, but then gives? He forgives, and then he gives. He gives everything he has. He gives his riches. He gives his wealth. He gives his inheritance to those who he's already forgiven. I mean, on my very best day, I might be able to forgive someone for wronging me. But to then give them all of my stuff, that's incredible. Can you imagine that kind of God? That kind of God. That's the God we worship. That's the God we know. That's the God who we're talking about this morning. And this is where it really gets wild. And make his face to shine upon us. So if, if you're reading this, if, if you're one of the original readers of this, that immediately, you're just going to have these bells going off of, of thinking of Moses. 
So Moses, who's been charged and tasked to lead God's people out of the nation of Egypt, obviously when you're trying to coordinate a move for, grumbling, for two million grumbling people, you're going to have some hard days, right? I mean, I don't know about you guys, moving's hard enough when it's just a couple people. Imagine, imagine coordinating two million people moving and all their stuff and everything that goes along with it. And they're grumbling, they're complaining, they're whining, they're, they're, they're going in some ways, could we go back to slavery? And Moses is just having a hard day. And he goes to God and he says, God, I'm having a really hard time, so I need you to show yourself to me. You've got to show up, God, because if I don't see who you are, if I don't know who you are, I don't think I can do this. And God says to him, you can't see me, because if you do, you would die. But go ahead and hide yourself in the rock. I'll pass by. And when you see my backside, that'll be enough. And he does. And Moses comes down and he is shining. His faith, face is transformed. May you make your face shine upon us. Paul, the apostle Paul, picks up this same theme on the other side of the cross. And he tells us in 1 Corinthians that for us, us believers here in 2017, on this side of the cross, we get to see God in the face of Jesus Christ. So we get something the psalmist could never even dream of. This would have seemed way too audacious. This would have seemed impossible that you and I, lowly, finite, small creatures, could see the infinite, miraculous, amazing God. And we get to see him in the face of Jesus Christ. And what is this? This is an invitation that, okay, I forgave you. I, go, I came down, I took your punishment, I took it in your place, and then I gave you all my stuff, you cleaned out my garage, you cleaned out my bank account, you took my, all, all my inheritance, and then, check this out, I adopted you. I brought you into my house and I made you a child of mine. So not only I forgive you, I gave you all my stuff, and then I made you part of my family. That is the gospel. You get God. You get a new family. You get adopted into God's family. You are a child of God. You have all the riches of eternity in Christ Jesus. You imagine that. You, me, today, there, there, is, there is a reality that on the other side of what God has done for us, we deserve nothing but judgment and punishment and wrath and consequence. And our God comes down and he's gracious and he blesses and he adopts. Why? Because what do we know about this God? This God is not a God who's far off, removed, but rather this God is near, and he wants to know you, and he loves you, and he cares about you, and he hears you, and he's with you. No, no, no other religion in all the world's history has believed anything like this about God. I mean, it's outlandish. I don't think a human could come up with this stuff. Usually, if humans come up with gods, they look a lot like us. They're usually petty, they're vindictive, and they're contractual. You know, they're, they're very just-driven. You get punishment or you get good, depending on your behavior. But yet, this idea is, you, it has nothing to do with your behavior. It has nothing to do with you keeping rules, but God comes down in your place, keeps all the rules on your behalf, and gives you new life, and then says, I'll be your dad. That's why we pray in the Lord's Prayer, our Father, our Abba, our Dad, who is in heaven, hallowed be your name. You get God and you get a new family. This is the gospel and it's right here in Psalm 67. I don't know about you, but there is this tendency that we do become a little bit numb to this. We can, in some ways, almost let this kind of just wash right over us and not really soak it in. And we forget so quickly, don't we? We are so prone to wonder, aren't we? I don't know about you guys, but I need to hear this every day. 
For some of us, even when we hear that God loves us, I would tell you to change that and often think of it this way. God, God likes you. Because sometimes in the love sense, we think of almost like in a very formal reality, like maybe how a king loves his subjects. He doesn't know them, but he thinks of them as a crowd out there, and he's like, oh, I love my people. But that's not the type of love we're talking about here. We're talking about the type of love a mom or a dad has for their kids. I know your name. I know your story. I know your personality. I love you. I like you. Think of a mom and dad. Like, uh, you know, my, my girl's in the phase right now where they're doing tons of Lego activities and they're drawing Dora like 28 times a day and, you know, random things like that. And what makes that interesting, what makes that fascinating for me is not what they create, but who they are. I, you know, let's be honest. They're Lego things. They're great. They're okay, maybe. But what makes me enthralled by it, what makes me captivated by that is because they're mine and because I love them. And they could be picking up sticks and singing songs and doing whatever that would seem so mundane to everyone else. But because they're my kids, I'm fascinated. I'm interested. I delight in them. I don't tolerate them. I like them. And some of us, that's, that's our narrative, that God's tolerating me. That somehow I snuck into this whole Christian church thing, and I guess I'm part of this big crowd, and I guess God loves me. But does he really love me, me? Does he know me? And yes, God does. May his face shine upon you. You are a new creation in Christ, so much so that God came to die for you so that you would have new life. Tim Keller says it like this. What it really means to be gospel-centered is we return to these truths all the time for all of our questions, for all of our circumstances. We look at the person and we look at the work of Jesus Christ and we need to marinate on that. We need to return to that. We need to come back to that over and over because the gospel, the gospel, the good news of the gospel is not the ABCs. It's not the beginning of the Christian life, but rather it's the A to Z of the Christian life. It's the totality of the Christian life. We are gospel people. We have one song and we play it over and over and over. The church is a one hit wonder. We play one song and that song is the gospel. And that's our good news. That's our only hope. And that's what we need to return to. Tim Keller also says the gospel is like hygiene. We need it daily. It's not something I heard at youth camp five years ago. It's not something where I walked an aisle 10 years ago, but rather I need the gospel just as much today as I did when I first became a Christian 17 years ago. Because my heart is so prone to wonder, and there are so many places and spaces where I am prone to unbelief. God, will you really come through? God, can I really trust you? God, do I still have to walk in shame and try to justify myself? Or can I realize that I've already been justified by your finished work on the cross? God, how much more if I look at what you've done to give me eternal riches do I have to worry about if you'll provide for me? God, what happens when my health is failing and the diagnosis is awful? Well, I look at the resurrection and I'm reminded of the new life, the eternal life that awaits for me. The gospel is the yes and the amen and the answer to all of life's needs, questions, and doubts. But yet here we are and we need to return to that reality over and over. I'll go quicker the rest of the passage, I promise. But verse one's just awesome. I, I mean, we, I could do another 20. I just love verse one. Verse two, and this is where it ties together because here's the beautiful thing about the gospel. The gospel propels, the gospel has changes, the gospel has consequences, and here are the consequences. Here's the outpouring of this good news. 
that your way may be known on the earth, that your way, your good news, this benediction, this blessing of who you are, that that would now be made known, that your saving power among all nations would be lifted up, that people would hear this good news. Because here's the thing about good news. If it's really good news, we love to share it, don't we? Hey, did you hear about so-and-so? Hey, you know they got engaged? Hey, you know they had a baby? Hey, you know they started, we love, I mean, just all Facebook is, is people trying to share what they perceive to be good news. Social media, here's good news, here's my vacation, here's my, you know, my new job, here's my trip, here's my, whatever it is, it's good news sharing. We're good news people. People love to share what they love. And look at the beginning there too. It says, that your way. That is actually a purpose clause for you, for you grammar nerds. What it really means is in order that, in order that. So the benediction comes forth, being reminded that God's been gracious, God's blessed you, God's adopted you, in order that, so that you and I would begin to be good news people. You and I would be conduits in which this grace would go forward. And when you and I, when we've truly been impacted by this good news, we can't help but begin to share it with others. That's the reality. When you have met Jesus, life looks different. Life changes dramatically, doesn't it? When you meet the risen God, when you meet the living God, when you expect something to be different, it's kind of like if I told you guys this morning, hey, I lit off a stick of dynamite in my hand. Who would be suspicious of that claim? Probably a few of you in this room. Why? Because if I really had something that powerful and I experienced it and I encountered it, it would drastically alter me. In a negative sense there. <laughs> Clearly negative sense. But how much more wonder I often think about the, the world's looking at us Christians and they're going like, if you really met God, shouldn't you look a little bit different? Shouldn't there have been some transformation? Shouldn't there have been some change? Matt Redman, in one of his worship songs, he says this, I'm breathing in your grace and I'm breathing out your praise. I'm breathing in your grace and I'm breathing out your praise. The natural rhythm for the believer, for the follower of Jesus, is that as we breathe in the gospel, as we breathe in this good news, we're going to exhale and share in praise and in song, in worship, and in life. And some of us fall on, on both sides of this. We love our quiet time and our devotion and Bible reading and community. And, and we're, I mean, just imagine if you only breathed in all day long. Eventually you have to exhale. And then some of us are on the other side. We love to get busy and do things and work really hard and, and do service projects and go, 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 go. But that's as if you're exhaling all day. Eventually you need to breathe in. But bottom line is Christians were meant to be conduits to the world around us. We were meant to be a living stream. In fact, look at this picture that I have up here. I'll show you guys. On one, you see kind of a stagnant pond. Look at that. That's probably mosquito infested and nasty. And no one would want to drink that, right? Would you look at that water and say that's probably life-giving? No, you know what? That, that water's stale. It's been dammed up. There's no stream. There's no movement in it. But rather, what gives life to water, what keeps water fresh, and what keeps water healthy is that it's flowing, and that for you and I, as, as followers of Jesus, there should be a flow through our life that the good news, the transformation that's taken place inside of us would flow out to the world around us. I just think of so much of the world, they're often looking at us saying, would you guys, would you guys please be some good news people for us? Would you bless us? Would you serve us? Would you share with us? Would you tell us this life-changing reality, this God that you know, would you share that with us instead of damning it up? where that water gets stagnant and we get dry and we get old. 
But rather, that water is meant to move, and the Spirit continues to refresh us, and that's the natural rhythm. That is the way Christians are made to operate. We're meant to share this good news of the gospel with people. I mean, I don't know about you, but the, the, the early church, I love to read the book of Acts. Acts 4, if you look at Acts 4, um, it's not going well for Christians, okay? Contrary to popular movies and, and, and novels from a few years ago, Christianity did not have a major impact worldwide because of political power or military might. That's not what happened whatsoever. Read the book of Acts. Here's what's going down. These people, Jesus has ascended. The, uh, a couple thousand people have gotten saved, and now they're being sent out from Judea, Samaria, to the ends of the earth. The mission's going forward, and things are going bad. People are getting killed. They're losing their jobs. There's hardship all around. People are being mocked. They're being scorned. They're being marginalized. They're being laughed at. And they get together to have a prayer meeting, which that seems like a really reasonable thing to do, right? If things are going hard, let's pray. I, what would you pray for in that prayer meeting? Safety? Um, maybe for them to, you know, get what they have coming to them? Maybe you would pray for some comfort or prosperity or for all this to be taken away or for these people to stop. Those all seem like reasonable things, right? They don't pray for any of that. They pray for one thing and one thing only. Boldness. Boldness. So yeah, okay, go ahead. Keep destroying us, keep killing us, keep laughing at us, keep taking our stuff, keep marginalizing us, but all we want is more boldness so we can tell more and more and more people about this God that we know, this God that's gracious, this God that blesses us, and this God that makes his face shine upon us. All they pray is for boldness. And this boldness, this boldness propels them out into faithfulness. A lot of us, we actually feel like an obstacle to sharing our faith is, is, is a sense of, of, of what if it doesn't work? But here's the reality. It doesn't matter. Your job is faithfulness. Only God changes human hearts. Only God grants new life. But you are to be faithful. You are to testify. That's what it means to have a testimony. Is not necessarily to even be a Bible scholar and to have all the answers. But reality, just to share what God has done in your life. To tell people of this risen Jesus that you met. I was lost and now I'm found. I was broken and I was dead in my sin and then I met Jesus and everything has been different. I was messed up and I was self-defensive and I wanted to justify myself and I thought I could fix myself and then I met God and he was gracious and he adopted me and he gave me new life and he allowed me to say, I don't have it all together and I don't have it figure, all figured out and I need a savior and he was gracious to me. Every single one of us if you're a follower of Jesus, you have a story to tell to bring glory to God. You have a story to tell that can compel others to consider Jesus, to check out Jesus. Now, who, if they don't, that's not on you. But you know what is on you is to breathe in his grace and to breathe out his praise and to share this good news with the world around us. That's what we are to do as Christians Blessing and mission, they go together. They go hand in hand. They're tied and tethered with one another. Without blessing, there is no mission. Without blessing, we have no message, do we? Because we don't even know the God that we claim to know. But without mission, blessing becomes stagnant and it becomes indulgent. And the church goes from being a movement, and that's when it's at its best, to being a museum. And the church is not a museum. The church is a hospital for sick, broken people that are far from God. Church Stonegate will always be better when we function as a movement rather than a museum. 
So, so how does this God propel this forward? What is, the, what is the fuel that pushes us into mission? Verse 3 picks up on that very theme. Here's what it says. Let the peoples praise you, O God. Let all the peoples praise you. Let the peoples praise you. Now, is, does this say Israel? Does this say the nation of Israel? No, it says all people. It says all people everywhere. It says all tribes and tongues and nations and ethnicities and backgrounds and socioeconomic statuses. It says everyone. Let all the peoples praise you. This is a missionary impulse already embedded into the Psalms, that all people would praise you. And why is praise so important? Because joy is a really big deal to God. Joy is a huge deal to God. Some people have the misconception that our God is a curmudgeon traffic cop, that he's up there to call balls and strikes and to keep you from having too much fun, but that's not the God we're encountering in Psalm 67. This God wants to see people praise him. He wants to see people praise him. Now, why is this a big deal? C.S. Lewis used to struggle with this idea of God constantly wanting to be praised. Uh, he wrote in many of his books kind of about this idea. For him, many years it felt like, well, this God seems a little egotistical? Why does he always need to be worshipped? Why does he always need to be praised? Why does he always need to be lifted up? God realizes that what affects us, what changes us, also grips our affections. What affects you, what affects you, also grips your affections, also grips and grabs what you love. If you were to go through most of the major causes over the last 30, 40, 50, 60 years of American history, from different civil rights causes, to different health causes, to different educational causes, it usually starts with a founder who's been massively affected by that very issue, first and foremost. And with that being affected them on the ground level, they, their affections are stirred, and they become transformed, and they become changed. And so when you and I meet the living God, what it looks like for us to really enjoy him is for him to grab a hold of our heart and to say where you're going to have your joy truly made manifest, where your life's truly going to find the satisfaction that you're craving and seeking for is in praising me, is in lifting up your voices in song. Jonathan Edwards, uh, he was a great theologian uh, during the, the 1700s, and he was also the president of Princeton uh, university for a while. Great theologian, actually even philosopher. Many people consider him to be the greatest theologian in American history. And he was writing and reflecting during uh, a period when revival broke out in the United States. So revival is basically when the, the Holy Spirit descends upon a place and lots of people begin to meet Jesus. Lives are changed, transformed and people's lives are made new and lots of people begin to meet Jesus. And in the middle of that, Jonathan Edwards began to ask himself the question of how do, how do you really tell the difference with all of this emotional hoopla, with all this energy and excitement between a legitimate and true transformation, a regenerated new heart and something that is, is just people being caught up in the emotional swell of what's going on here. And he gave this language, almost as if we were to define, divide the room here, between what he called professors and beholders. Professors and beholders. And he said, professors are those who find God to be useful. They look at God and they say, God, go ahead and put my life together. God, go ahead and make sure my life continues to work, that my marriage is okay, that God, when I look at you, I see an answer to a lot of my problems. But really, 
Really, God, you're there to be useful. It's a very pragmatic way of viewing God, almost as if God is your butler, not your dad. And then the professor over here, they were beholders, and they found God to be beautiful. So when you look at your life, is God useful or is he beautiful? Is God useful or is he beautiful? And when he becomes beautiful, the only, the only outcome, the only result of that is to begin to praise him, to begin to extol him, to begin to speak of him. Because the things that we really love, we can't help but speak of, can we? Uh, when I was in college, um, a Chipotle opened up like right across from, that was bad times because I ate there way too often. But when Chipotle first opened up, I felt like I had discovered burrito heaven. And uh, I began to sing the praises to everyone I knew of the goodness of Chipotle. Um, I was, have you tried Chipotle? Have you been to Chipotle? Have you had the hot sauce in Chipotle? You got to go to Chipotle. It's amazing. It's a burrito as big as your head, Chipotle. You, you got, and I became someone who sung the praises of Chipotle. But what was so weird is, is it's not something Chipotle paid me for. I wasn't on their, I wasn't on their payroll. I wasn't forced to do that, I, but I wanted to. Why? Because what we do as humans, in order for our joy to truly be made manifest, for it to fully be experienced, we have to share. It's the reason love songs are written. It's the reason novels are written. Because our joy must be experienced. It must be fleshed out. In fact, that's what the psalmist tells us in verse 4. Let the nations be glad and sing for joy. So why are they singing? Don't miss that. The reason they're singing, the singing is connected to the grabbing, to the obtaining of their joy. So their joy is not really realized. Their joy is not held onto yet until they sing. They must sing in order for their joy to be realized. Uh, and we do this in community. Humans, Christian or non-Christian, you are a communal creature. You're a communal creature. All of our most joyful moments are done in community. Um, think about a wedding. What do you want at a wedding? You want your friends and family there. You want them to be there to observe. And what do you want them to do? You want them to share in your joy. Or what about when, when you get a, a promotion or you graduate from college and you have your graduation ceremony? Do you just go home and stare at the wall and eat a, a Hot Pocket? No, you have a party, don't you? You know why you have a party? Because your joy is meant to be experienced and enhanced as it's expressed with those in community around you. And that's what we're doing on Sunday mornings. When we come together, when you wonder, okay, why did I get up again, brush my teeth, hopefully, and then come to church? Here's why. Because you're joy-seeking creatures who need community for us to express, to sing for, so that we would obtain our joy. So that we would have joy, I would amplify your joy and you would amplify my joy in Jesus as we sing songs to his very name. And as we sing songs, we're transfixed and transformed. We encounter the living God. Here's how the Westminster Shorter Catechism puts it. It says this. The chief end of man is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. John Piper, actually, he changed that and to um, by, and I think that actually makes a lot of sense. If you read it, the chief end of man is to glorify God by enjoying him forever. 
So if you're looking at all over the Bible, you read the reality that says glorify God, glorify God, glorify God, glorify. Every time you read glorify God, it's an invitation to enjoy him, to know him, to remember that he's your dad, to remember that he's been gracious to you, to remember that he's blessed you, and to remember that all of your questions and circumstances and problems and brokenness find their answer in the good news of the gospel that you have a God that loves you, that you have a God that's for you, that you have a God that's atoned for your sin. And even when you were prone to wonder and you ran away in wrath and rebellion and you stuck your thumb out at him, he said, you're loved and you can always come back. And he'll kill the fatted calf and welcome you right back into the family. And so this God, once again, this good news is going to go forward. That's how our psalm concludes today. This is what it says in verse 5 through 7. Let the peoples praise you. There's our refrain again. There's our chorus. Let the peoples praise you, O God. Let all the peoples praise you. The earth has yielded its increase. God, our God, shall bless us. God shall bless us. Let all the ends of the earth fear him. Let all the ends of the earth fear him. So this is written thousands of years ago, and here you and I stand in Midlothian, Texas in 2017, and we are the realization of Psalm 67. I mean, we're pretty far from Jerusalem, wouldn't you guys say? I don't know about you guys, but that's probably a pretty expensive plane ticket to get there. And yet here we are, let all of the nations praise him, that this mission, this cosmic mission that God is telling his story throughout the Bible is culminating in all of the nations praising him and singing his praises. Habakkuk tells us that what's going to happen when history is finally realized, if you're wondering where this world is going, it's in all of the worth being, all the world being covered with his glory as the sea is covered with water. That's what God is doing. That's what he's up to. And we get to be a part of that, not because it's up to us, but rather because God is inviting us to come along with him. And he's already accomplished all that needs to be fulfilled, and we are just to be faithful people that go on this great adventure with him. Revelation 5, 9 through 10 says this, and they sang a new song saying, worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals, for you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and every language and every people and every nation. And you have made them a kingdom and priests for our God, and they shall reign on the earth. So our God is in the business of putting all things back together again. It's the best Humpty Dumpty story ever that he takes broken things, he takes people that are broken and fractured from one another, he takes different races, he takes different educations, he takes different ethnicities and tribes and languages and people from all sorts of backgrounds that have nothing in common except this good news that our God is gracious, that our God is for us, and that our God loves us. This is such good news. I mean, this is the God that's in your Bible. And so, don't get this all I'm gonna say and I'll finish. This week, who's the person that you're going to breathe this out to? Someone needs to know this. And God's just asking you. He's encouraging you, saying, come along with me and be faithful. There's someone in your spaces and places at work, in your community, in your family, in your circle of influence that I'm never going to have access to. And that's not God's design and plan. 
to say, get everyone to a, a pastor to hear from them, but rather for you to go and to tell your story of how God's changed you and how he's transformed you and how he's giving you new life and to tell them about the goodness of this God. So who's that person? Before you leave here today and, and maybe go to Chipotle, think of that person. Maybe call them, text them, encourage them, reach out to them, love them. It's all grace upon grace. And you and I get invited to this incredible journey to tell others this good news. Let's pray. God, you are a God who has been gracious to us. Gracious to us in ways that are so numerous that we often become just quite accustomed to them. We forget to count our blessings because our blessings begin to feel like entitlements, just things that we deserve and things that are just uh, baked into our life. So God, if we only knew the extent of how you've already been gracious to us, to how you've blessed us, we would be here for the rest of the day still singing your praises. And God, would we be people that are filled with gratitude as we breathe in this gospel, as we see this gospel applied to all the areas of our life that we couldn't help but begin to share it with others, those around us, those in our lives that you've given us access to, to share your good news with. And God, you are faithful beyond faithful. In fact, we are all evidence of your faithfulness, that there's not one of us in this room that knows you right now that was not a miracle from the beginning, that we would open our eyes, that our hearts would be softened, that you would give us new life. So God, you can do that again. And you want to do that again. You want to do that in our communities, in our neighborhoods, and right here in Ellis County and throughout the Dallas-Fort Worth area. You want to see people know you, to hear about the real, gracious, loving God. So God, may we not forget just how kind you've been to us, how loving you've been to us. And because of that, we're being sent to share that love and kindness with all those around us. Amen. Thank you for listening to this message from Stonegate Church, located in Midlothian, Texas. For service times, additional audio and study resources, as well as information about our church, please visit us at stonegate-church.com.